with us. Um, you, it'll be important that you know we're in the middle of a series uh, through the book of Acts. It's a letter written by Luke to a young politician during the early stages of the church, the movement of God, trying to help him understand what it's about and what it's not about. And I was thinking this week, if you had to paint a picture, if you had to describe what the kingdom of God on earth would look like, how would you describe it? I mean, today, right here, not Siri, not you, Today, if you had to draw a picture, if you had to describe the movement of God, what it should look like, how would you describe it? Perhaps it would be led by a superstar leader, someone who could attract a crowd. Maybe it's a political movement that would be used to legislate the morality of God for all people. Maybe when you picture the movement of God, you picture something small. Powerless, hopeless to change anything. See, in the days that Jesus walked the earth, there were a number of different viewpoints, a number of different expectations of what the kingdom of God would look like, what it would be, what it would, what it would accomplish. Some really hoped and believed it would be a political movement that would break the bondage of sin forever that would honor the righteous, that would bring blessing for everybody, and the gates of hell would never prevail against that. But this is what made Jesus' ministry so interesting. See, when Jesus came and spoke about the kingdom, it blew people's minds back then, and I still believe it blows people's minds today. If you have your Bibles, you join me in the Gospel of Matthew. I know I just said we're doing Acts, but humor me for a minute. Book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, it's the beginning of one of Jesus' most famous sermons. There are sermons on the mount, and there was a time where there were people gathering, and Jesus just sat down on a hillside and just preached. And he began by painting a picture for people about the kingdom of God. And listen to how he described it. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And blessed, look at that. Blessed are those who have been persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kind of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Man, when that happens, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. In the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Jesus is very clear when he came on earth, there's a new paradigm. The movement of God is not a movement of politics. It's not a movement of financial power and markets. It's not ruled with position, but with humility. No longer will the authoritative rulers be blessed, but peacemakers instead. It's not a kingdom of the rich, but of the poor in spirit. It's not a kingdom built for the strong, but for the meek and the gentle. If you have ever wondered what the movement of God should look like, how it began, what are the characteristics that should exist in it today, that is what the book of Acts is for. The book of Acts is here to help not only Theophilus, a young politician, understand what God is doing, but to remind us today of what God is doing as well. So now, will you join me in the book of Acts? Acts chapter 2. So we're going to get into the birth of the church of power. if If you really want to understand a movement, if you want to know what it's about... If you want to really understand its heart, you need to understand how it began. If you remember in context, Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit came, it came in such a way that everyone in Jerusalem heard it and everyone was in the streets wondering what's going on. Remember, that's what they're asking. What does all this mean? What's happening? What's going on? And and a newly filled Peter a disciple stood up and preached this powerful sermon explaining to people God's plan throughout history and how Jesus was the culmination, fulfillment of it. I want to remind you how he finished. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. It says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know. After he explained everything that Jesus did, look what he says, verse 36, chapter 2. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain, take it to the bank, be confident that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And this Jesus whom you crucified. Three things. Peter ended his sermon on this. Jesus is the Lord. He is the master. He is the ruler of all things. He's the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega. He is the ultimate authority. Jesus is the master. But he's also the Christ, the Messiah, the champion of God, the long-awaited promised one who would reconcile mankind in relationship with God. Peter finishes and says, this is Jesus. He's the the ruler of all things. He's the Messiah. He's your hope. He was the answer to all of your problems. And look how he finished it. This Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus. This one. This answer. What you hoped for and prayed for. The one solution to all of your issues. You killed him. Not only did you kill him. You crucified him. The most horrific form of mass punishment ever. I mean, you tortured the man. 
That's how he finished his sermon. And here's where we kick off our series today, our, our study today. Verse 7, or 37, first word, it says now. The term now. It's a continuative conjunction. It links one element with the next. In other words, it's the fact that you killed Jesus. The fact that people heard that. The one answer to our problems, the solution to our issues, the answer to our prayers. Oh no, we killed them. The fact that that was said and it settled in their hearts. Now as a result, look at verse 37. When they heard that, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? They are pierced to the heart. A term, pierced to the heart, it's a phrase meant to describe something that cuts so deep, it reached the soul. It's a mortal wound that brings certain death. These people were lost, they were devastated. No! The thing we prayed for, the thing we hoped for, the one thing we needed, we blew it. Now, if you want to understand this movement of God, the first thing you have to understand is how it began. It began with salvation. It began with salvation, and the first point of that salvation was conviction. I mean, the birth of the church of God, that the gates of hell won't prevail, it began with salvation, and it started with conviction. They were pierced to the heart. It's a mortal wound straight to the soul. They recognized, we blew it. We're lost. We're doomed. And I love their question. They looked at Peter and the other apostles and they said, what do we do? Like, is there a sacrifice for that? Remember, there's a sacrifice for everything for Israel. Hey, can we kill a dove for that? Or is that something that we're supposed to burn like wheat and barley and flour? I mean, which which sacrifice do we do? I mean, what can we pay? What penance do we have to do? I mean, come on, Peter, there's got to be something that we can do to reconcile this. There's got to be something that we can do. I mean, they were struggling in this position. They were pierced to the heart, recognizing that they're lost and something had to be done. That term conviction, it's an act of exposing our hearts to the truth of sin, to reveal to us the depths of our sin and to convict us from the reality of our failures. Right there in the moment of that sermon, they were convicted. And you might say, oh man, I mean, Peter's an awesome preacher, right? I mean, this is all based on the message that Peter did. I want to remind you of something Jesus said. John chapter 16, verse 7, 8. Look what he said. He's talking to his disciples. He says, I tell you the truth. It is for your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And look at what he says next. He says, and he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world. Convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. 
to convict, to expose hearts to the truth of sin, to reveal to us the depths of our struggle, to convict us of the realities of our future. I mean, right there, Acts chapter 2, right there at the end of Peter's sermon, the Holy Spirit moves and they're pierced to the heart, they're cut to the soul, their eyes are open and they recognize the depths of their problem. You might wonder, well, why, why does God want to convict? Why is that a huge role of the Holy Spirit after all? I mean, conviction, it just seems so, like people get sad, depressed, broken. It's not great for self-image. Why would God want to do that? Well, it's the next stage of salvation, see? What follows conviction. Look at what Peter says, verse 38. After everyone's convicted, recognizing, oh my gosh, something has to be done. Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent. Peter, what do we do? There's got to be a sacrifice. Can we burn something, cook something, kill something, pay something, do something? What can we do to cover this? Peter says, there's only one thing you can do. Repent. A term repent means to change your mind, to change your direction, to change the way of your life out of remorse for your sin and failure. It involves both an acknowledgement of one's failure and a realignment of one's future. Repentance. It involves both an acknowledgement of your failure and a realignment of your future. See, I think repentance is something that we haven't really come to grips with. A lot of you, if you've been here for a while, know that I have this little book. It's called The Little Hiptionary. It's a banging pocket reference for cool peeps everywhere. When I saw that, I thought, I have to have that. Within, inside the Hiptionary, the Hiptionary is for old people like me to try to understand how hip people like you are talking and what you're trying to say. I've been informed by hip people of this newest generation that my hiptionary is outdated. However, there's a phrase in here that I still hear throughout culture, and it's this. My bad. You ever hear that? My bad. According to the hiptionary, the bang and pocket reference for cool peeps everywhere, which I think has a certain amount of authority to it, says this. Here's my bad. It's an acknowledgement of fault or blame without apology or remorse. My bad. Hey, oops, my fault, but without apology or remorse. Here's an example. My bad. Is that all you have to say after burning down the house? (laughs) I think as a culture, we view repentance as looking up to heaven saying, oops, sorry, God, my bad. There's no acknowledgement of wrong. There's no change of direction There's no shift for the future. What Peter is saying, he's not coming up and saying, hey, look up at heaven and say, my bad. He's saying, y'all need to make some changes. You need to recognize the depths of your sin. Acknowledge your failure. And make a shift in your life. Peter is clear. You want to do something about your struggle with sin? Repent. I got to tell you, this is how the church began. 
It wasn't an act of politics. It wasn't some overthrow of culture. It wasn't a financial blip in the market. It wasn't rooted in violence. It was a work of the Holy Spirit who convicted people. And then Peter gave the solution. Repent. You got to do more than just say, I'm sorry. That's not repentance. Repentance is an acknowledgement of your wrong and a change in your direction. It began with salvation. There was conviction. There was repentance. Look what happens next. Peter says to them, repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism. It's a public declaration of your faith. It's an action where you declare your allegiance to Jesus. You go into the water, the old person. You come out a new person, a new creation, a change of direction, a different path for your future. Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Look what it says. For the forgiveness of your sins. Third component, how the church began. It was built on conviction. I want to make sure you understand, that's the Holy Spirit's job too. It's not my job to convict you. That's the Holy Spirit's job to convict you. Began with salvation, conviction, repentance, and goes into forgiveness. Forgiveness, the term means to be pardoned from your crimes, to be freed from bondage, liberated from the consequence of your sin. And again, I want to tell you, I I think this is still an issue we haven't come to grips with. I still think there's people today who are trying to repay God for the failures of their lives. There's still good people who claim to love Jesus, who are going through life, carrying the burdens of their failures and their struggles and their issues of the past. And they keep trying to repay God to somehow earn his favor by maybe giving money to the church or serving in the youth program. Or somehow you try to be a good person in life and and you keep bearing this burden of sin. I don't know how many Christians go through life just waltzing through because they have not truly accepted and experienced forgiveness to be pardoned, completely pardoned, freed from bondage, liberated from the consequence of sin. If you align your life with Christ, if you repent, you change direction. Align your life with Jesus. You're forgiven. You're pardoned. The old person's dead. There's new life to be lived. It's not just Peter. I mean, Paul said the same thing. Look at what he said in in Ephesians 1. He said this, In him we have redemption. Through his blood we've been purchased. The forgiveness, the pardon of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. Man, he's not just doling it out as I do money for my boys. I pass out dollar bills like they're falling away. I'm tight, not Jesus. He's passing out forgiveness like he's loaded. He's 
loaded with it. He's lavished it on you. Look at Colossians. Paul says this, Colossians 1.13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He rescued us. He picked us up from our precarious position of sin, transplanted us to a new position of honor and glory where we receive forgiveness of sins. Peter wants to make sure. Here's back then, readers today, you want to know what the church should be based on? Salvation. Conviction of sin. Repentance. It's more than just acknowledging and recognizing our failure. But it's a change of direction. And then forgiveness. A pardon. I did a wedding yesterday in San Diego and I was reminding them about the love of God. I was reminding myself too. Love is patient. Love is kind. Is not jealous. Doesn't boast. You know the next one? Keeps no record of wrongs. Love forgives. By the way, that love bears all things, believes all things, never fails. And we get so hung up on trying to get this picture of what church should look like. What church should be about. A church of power. It began with salvation. Conviction of sins. Repentance. And forgiveness. I need to ask you, Perhaps you're here today and you, you need salvation. I wouldn't blame you if you perhaps grew up in church all of your life and weren't sure what church is about. I grew up in church. And it wasn't until I was 20 years old where I recognized the power of salvation. Repentance and forgiveness, the freedom it comes with that, the new life, the new beginning. Maybe you're here. Brian, I need salvation. Before we're finished, we're going to give you an opportunity for that. But if you really want to understand the church of power, we can't stop at just salvation because God didn't stop at salvation. The church of power began with salvation. It didn't begin with some riot. It didn't begin with some power shift. It didn't begin with some financial blip. It didn't begin because of a world war. It began and was rooted and needs to still be rooted in salvation. 
Without repentance, without salvation, without conviction, without Jesus, the church is merely a social club for moral people who delude themselves into thinking they matter. Without salvation, the church is no better than the YMCA, the Boys and Girls Club of America, and every other man-made social construct developed through time. Without salvation. Without the power of the Holy Spirit to convict. Without the call to repentance. It's more than just looking up and acknowledging your failure. It's making a change of direction. And it's the greatest part of all. That out of no power of yourself, receive forgiveness. Absolution of wrongs. Freedom from bondage. A gift of new life plucked out of the muck and mire of your position and placed in an altogether new and different position of power and glory. And that's how the church began. But it didn't stop there. It began with salvation, but it continued in community. Look how it continues. Verse 39, Peter says, For this promise is for you, your children, and all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified, kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from those, uh, from this perverse generation. So then those who had received this word were baptized. And that day there were added 3,000 souls, and they were continually, look at verse 42, As a result of that, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It was from that moment. It wasn't just one big church service and everyone walked up, said their prayer, and then left the same as they came. Something changed immediately. They were baptized 3,000 souls, 3,000 people, all of a sudden. And verse 42, it wasn't just one or two. It wasn't just the special ones. It wasn't the gate kids who had this extra special ability in spiritual matters. It was everybody. They all were continually devoting themselves. First thing, the church continued after it began with salvation, it continued in devotion. All of them. They devoted themselves. That term devoted, that term means to be deeply committed to, to give full attention to something. And check this term out. It's in the present active, which means it wasn't just a one-time thing. That first Sunday, everyone devoted themselves and then it waned over time. Nope. Man, once the church began, they devoted, they committed. Man, it was something deep in their soul. Look at it. They were continually devoting themselves. They were constantly committing themselves to a series of things. Number one, the apostles' teaching. They were devoting themselves. Teach us more. Ever wonder what the apostles taught? Remember at the end of Matthew, Jesus said, 
Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I commanded you, all that I taught you for three years. I often wonder how many times Peter tried to push people out of a boat. That was a joke. I won't do that second service. They're continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching as the apostles taught them what Jesus taught them, fulfillment of the Old Testament, the kingdom of God. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, that term fellowship. They devoted themselves to deep, authentic, and real relationship. They didn't just show up once a week. They invested in each other's lives. They shared struggles. They wept with those who wept and mourned with those who mourned. They celebrated achievements. That fellowship, koinonia, this deep community. By the way, koinonia is used to define two different types of relationships. But the same word is used for both. Number one, our relationship with God. The fellowship that we have with God, koinonia. And it's also used to describe the fellowship we have with one another, koinonia. It wasn't something they had to grow. Man, it just happened. Man, these people came together. It wasn't just one or two. Like the entire group, continually, ongoing, devoting themselves to teaching. Help us understand Jesus better. Fellowship. Man, let's do life together. Breaking of bread. Let's do communion. we got to remind each other over and over of what Jesus did for us. Why? Remember what Paul said. Have this attitude in yourself. What Jesus did for us, we're to do for one another. Breaking bread. Look at this one. Prayer. They saw this modeled by Jesus and they were taught to do it by Jesus. They didn't need a conference on it. The church began with salvation and continued in community. First element of that community, devotion, commitment, together. Studying God's word together, trying to apply it. Man, what's that mean in my life? How do I do that in my family? What's that look like in our kooky culture of California? How do we do that? Man, let's wrestle with that. Fellowship. Building those relationships of trust. Where we can be honest with ourselves. Instead of always hiding our true thoughts. Breaking bread, keeping Jesus' life as the model. In prayer, it's not discipline, it's an opportunity to involve the Heavenly Father, the author of life, the creator of everything, the authority over all, to align our will and our plan with His will and His plan. And they were devoted to that, they were committed to that. You want to know what church looks like? I'm not one of those people that says we all have to be just like the early church, but there's characteristics in here that just were like natural from salvation. They were devoted together. I was thinking this week, 
What do you think we're devoted to? I mean, they were devoted to apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. How about us? How about you? What are you devoted to? It's going through my list. I'm devoted to my wife and kids. I'm committed to them. I'm devoted to you. I love this church. I live for this place. But am I devoted, committed, this heartfelt thriving to understand God better? Am I devoted to deep relationships where you can speak truth into my life? Am I devoted to prayer more than just one day, the first Thursday of every May? What are you devoted to? See, Larry Church, this church of power. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and to prayer. But it didn't stop there. Look what they just loved it. Verse 43, keep going. It says, everyone... And again, this is right after that sermon, man. This is like just naturally flowing within the church. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Like it wasn't fading. It was continuing. It was ongoing. There was no natural decline in the rhythms of life. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who believed were together. They had all things in common. And so many people read that and they have that sense of awe. Oh, well, Brian, they had this awe, this wonder, this amazement because of the miraculous stuff they saw. I don't tell you, I don't think that's all of it. I'm sure that was some of it. People get so hung up on the miraculous that we forget about the transformational. Man, look what happened. It wasn't just the miraculous Verse 44, all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property, possessions, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And again, this is not, please understand me, this is not a call from the pastor. Everyone go sell their houses and bring it to the church. This is not something that has to happen. This is something to show us and illustrate us to, to illustrate to us of what happened. Man, there is such a shift in how they saw life. There is such a movement of what they valued. I mean, there is a transformation happening. They began selling their property, possessions, and just sharing it with all. Day by day, they're continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And they loved it. The best part of every day was coming together with God's people. Let's read that. Just remembering, remember what the psalmist says, better one day in his courts, a thousand elsewhere. Man, better one day in the presence of God and his people. Man, there was something special when they gathered together. They loved it. They craved it. Look at verse 47. 
They're praising God. I mean, all throughout. I, would just, I just want to remind you, nothing changed politically. Rome is still oppressing them. There is still poverty. There is still sickness. There is still disease. There are still wacky children. There are still hot summers. Nothing changed except their mindset. Do you see that? Man, that's the church of power. It began with conviction, a work of the Holy Spirit. It involves repentance and then forgiveness. Again, a work of God. Nothing we can buy, nothing we can pay for. It gave rise into this continued movement of devotion. The next point is our transforming together. I mean, it's happening to everybody. There's a complete shift of thought, a change of action. They were praising God in the midst of their, what they were complaining about a week ago. They were praising God for now. And look at the end of this. Because I think Luke had it here for a reason. They were praising God. Look at, look at what these people are known for. Having favor with all people. Man, that had to have been something new. I mean, it's in the list of all the things that changed. That term favor had great relationship with people who weren't part of their movement. The term means they were seen as delightful and pleasant by everyone who knew them. I'm just reading that. I'm just going through here and like, wait a minute. You have this movement of power that's based on conviction, rooted in repentance, right? Culminated in forgiveness of sins. You have this group of people that were just transforming together. They were devoted. They were loving relationship. It was changing how they live lives to the point that they were all selling their stuff and just giving it away, not even loaning it away, giving it away. And that's there to help you understand the magnitude of their change. Breaking their bread, praising God in the midst of all the kooky. And the very last thing, everybody loved them. They had favor with all people. You know, the Apostle Paul says, as it pertains to you, be at peace with all men. It's not something just for us. I got to ask you, how do you think all people view the movement of Christ today? I'm looking at the church of power here. The way it began, the way it continued with devotion, transformation, Look how it continued. The end of verse 47. See what God started to do there. He just continued. The cycle just built. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Those who are being saved. Peter wasn't getting up preaching every 
preaching these crusades. There wasn't a lot of marketing, social media. Just lives. If you want to understand the church of power, maybe even understand what's missing in churches today, perhaps this little section can shed some life for us. When God began his church, God did it. wasn't a political movement. wasn't based in financial fear. wasn't a hostile takeover. It wasn't based on a, on a super individual who could just attract masses. It wasn't based on business plans, not dependent on city codes. It just began with salvation. The power of the gospel, power of salvation for all who believe, began with conviction, moved towards repentance, and thousands of people experienced forgiveness for the first time. And it blew their minds. And it changed their thinking and transformed their entire culture. They were devoted together. Trying to have a better understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus wants for them. To prayer. Man, their lives just changed over time. They saw the world differently after salvation. They didn't care about who controlled the world because they had eternity. They didn't fear what man can do. What can man do? If God's for us, who can be against us? And they were part of a movement where the gates of hell can't even prevail against it. Man, what can man do? Being a part of that movement, it changed their life. They no longer made their decisions based on their their generational impact. They made decisions based on how they can bless others and lead other people to Christ today. And what they saw, what God did that day, God continued to do every day. I believe God still does that today. What began with 120 grew into thousands. Now there's millions of people today. Worshiping God. And desiring to be used in much the same way as these early Christians here. 
And I don't think it's just us who sometimes get disillusioned, disappointed. We're just in the early parts of Acts. The early church had their struggles too. But make no mistake, from its onset, it was a work of God. Not a work of man. So that no one can boast. So perhaps, if you want to be a church of power again, we see lives changed. Culture transformed. Maybe we need to go back and start where they did. Begin with salvation. Who needs it? Who needs to experience forgiveness of sin? Who came in this morning still bearing the weight of their sin, defining themselves by the characteristics of their failure? Who needs salvation today? And the rest of us, where can we change our devotion? What are you committed to? What are you investing in? What's the foundation of your decision making? See, if you experience the forgiveness of sins, and you're a part of the kingdom of God, it changes your mind. question for you. Of those two options, salvation and devotion, where do you need to start today? Let's pray. God, I, for one, am grateful for your word. God, it allows us to see how you started this movement. And God, we confess it's so hard, especially in the West, God, we have all of these mechanisms and mindsets and models and business practices that we, that we try to plug in to this church. And it gets murky and it gets muddy. And sometimes, God, we lose track. Out of the components that existed at its beginning. God, help us to remember salvation, the root of your movement, the power of the gospel for our lives, the promise of our future. God, the solution to our past. God, for those of us who are saved, I pray, God, help us to remember who we are. And God, I pray if there's people here today that still bear the weight of their sin, who are still buried in the guilt of their failure, who still feel lost and cut off from you because of their brokenness, God, I pray you open their eyes and allow them to see you as I do. God, open their ears. I might hear your offer of new life.
a fresh start, a new beginning. And God, as they repent to you, God, perhaps before they just apologized, but God, as they repent, as they acknowledge their brokenness and commit to making a change in life, God, I pray you hear them as you promised and cleanse them of their brokenness, renew their life, free them from the burden of their guilt and shame. God, and give them the Holy Spirit as you promised that will seal them in righteousness, that will propel them for a life of power and continue to lead them and guide them in the paths of righteousness. God, for those people who repented to you, God, I pray you give them now a peace that's beyond human comprehension, a joy that is overflowing. God, for those of us who've already tasted your salvation, who already entrusted our lives to you, God, I pray Renew our hope in your church. Renew our devotion to your word. God, restore the joy of our salvation. Help us to hunger and desire relationships together. God, transform our lives. Help us to live in a way that reflects your glory. God, and help us to encourage other people to do the same. And Father, help us to pray as you taught us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Give us what we need. God, we pray, please continue to forgive our failures. God, and we promise we're, we're going to forgive those who have wronged us as well. God, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. God, help us to walk a life that's reflective of you. And then give us faith that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.